Great. Well, I, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast is the one and only Levi Roots. Uh, Levi is a musician. Uh, he's now a TV personality, celebrity chef, but he's probably best known for appearing in uh, uh, the hit series uh, Dragon's Den, where uh, two investors uh, took a punt on Levi, and I suppose the rest is history, isn't it, Levi? How, how are you doing? It's great to welcome you. I'm good, you know. I'm, I'm I'm really feeling on top of the world. I know it's a strange time to be saying that because with COVID and, and everything else that's going on and people losing loved ones and all that. But I think that there's always a chance that you can look on the positives. And there's always some positives, no matter how much, you know, the negatives are going on. If you do look hard enough, you, you will find positive. And I've been looking at well, loads of positives, Sam. Absolutely. Great to hear. Where, where in the world are you, Levi? Where, where are we speaking to you from? I'm in the centre of the world, in Brixton, in South London. <laughs> and and what's, what's life like in Brixton? Is it, is it a good place to live? You like living there? Well, it's brilliant. I remember when, when, you know, first coming from Jamaica and coming over here, it was the hub of the Caribbean. You know, Brixton really was back then. My parents, like a lot of people, came over in the Windrush time in the early 60s, 50s and 60s. And um, it was coming to Brixton where you can actually be inspired by, you know, local people that were a bit like you. Um, and I say that because that's what it was like back then. But I'm sure that a lot of people that has come to Brixton recently have seen that with, through gentrifications and changes, doesn't exactly look like the time when I was a kid around the place. But it's still a, a really still lovely place. Yeah, you were just a boy. Wait, we was at ten or eleven, were you, when you came to the UK? Yeah, I was. I was eleven. Um, came came from Clarendon in in Jamaica. Um, it's very strange. Never travelled before as a young boy. Never leaving outside of my little village. Um, with the love of my grandma and everything was very small. And then having to travel on a plane and come to the UK at the age of eleven, not ever experiencing anything outside of said, my local community. It was pretty tough at the time. It was daunting, actually, for an 11-year-old boy. Were those, um, were those first 11 years quite formative for you, though, being, uh, being in Jamaica? Do, do you kind of, uh, have they shaped you in any way? Absolutely. It's been the making of, you know, because I, I personally, I, I had to do with being ripped away from somebody who was, mother, father, mother in and everything to me, which was my grandma as being the youngest of the family. I wasn't one of the first to come over when my parents came to, to the UK. Uh, I was sort of left as the young, normally back then, the youngest always been left behind because my parents couldn't do with a young child. When they left, I was six at the time and it would have been very difficult for them to take a six-year-old where they got to find a job in an old new country, buy a house and start then for the kids one at a time. So I spent the time with my grandma and everything to me was about her, you know. Um, as a lot of people will know that I've dedicated my sauces and, and all my recipes to her. But having to be ripped away, because I did ask to come as a lot of people back then at my age um, that were coming over. You didn't exactly want to come because you didn't actually miss your parents. You were, I was in an idyllic place of a fantastic place in Clarendon where they were jumping fish and every tree and fruits on it and it was absolutely amazing as a child and then to come over here and and to be eating baked beans on the plane and then arrive in winter when it was freezing cold with no leaves on the trees because back then I didn't really understand about molting leaves and how trees molt 
in the winter. So yeah. it was a bit like the petrified forest when I, when I came off the plane and I saw what this country was like in winter with, with no green leaves. So was, yeah, it was the making of me to actually to find the new me in this new country. Yeah. Was it was it ever explained to you, Levi, as a kid, why your parents were going? You know, did you understand the, the reason behind it? Well, for me, I think my brothers and sisters did because they were a bit much older than me at the time. But as I said, I was five, six and seven when, when my, my dad first left to come over um, to, to the UK. I was five and two years later, my mom, my mom left me as well and came over. So I didn't really understand what was happening. I, every now and again, my, you know, somebody would say there's an iron bird above you and a plane in those times we call iron bird. Um, I was, and they said, your mom you know, went on that. And my grandmother used to remind me that every time a plane went past, I used to look up and say that my, my mom left me in one of those. But for me, that was the only sort of memory I had. I didn't really miss my parents. I, I was having too much of a great time with my grandma. As I said, she knew that I was the youngest and she had to give me a bit more love than she would my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, so I was really enjoying being with her. So having to come here was was to reconnect with these two people who were, who were mom and dad, who I didn't really have, have much knowledge about, uh, about leaving Jamaica um, to come to the UK. Yeah. And, you, and you, you got, I understand you got your love of music through your grandma, through her taking you to church. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. She, she was a great singer in the Baptist church. You know, we, we had a local church, Baptist church, um, with a, a preacher called Mass Jocelyn. I'll never forget it. Because my, my, my grandma, I think a lot of people in, the, in, in Content Village sort of saw me as a young protege of my grandma. They were hoping that I would have gone into the church because she was, she was a leader of the choir. I started to sing from I was an early, early age and started to sing with her. And then my grandfather was also a singer as well too within the Baptist church. My, my grandmother and my grandfather used to go do it together um, right. in the church. So it was a very musical family because of the church and church was a very sort of um, homely place for me. I felt very homely when I was, every time I was in church with my grandma because I knew she was enjoying herself and I loved to see her smile and I loved to see her sing. So whenever time she was there, just because I knew my grandma was loving every moment in church, I was also comfortable as well. Fabulous. So do you do you remember some of the hymns that you were you were singing, Levi? What 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 kind of hymns do you recall from your childhood? Well, I, we, we used to sing loads of hymns, and I, and I still you know and I I still sing them now. Whenever time I you know I do my speaking to an elderly audience, you know I, I sing, stand up and tell me if you love my savior. Stand up and tell me if you love my Lord. Oh, I want to know if you love my Savior. I want to know if you love my Lord. Oh, love it. Love it, Levi. <laughs> it was typical songs, songs like that that we used to sing. And it was always joyous in church. I mean, it was like, I, I suppose church was our dance hall. Yeah, because church in Jamaica and in the Caribbean, you know, coming from, you know, from the Pocomania days. And I don't know whether you know of sort of Jamaican history of religion going back, um, but Pocomania is, is one of Jamaican sort of old version of worship. 
Right. And it was it was very jolly and singing and knocking cymbals and you get up and you're dancing and you're having a real good time, a bit like you're in a party. But really, it is giving praise to God. But it, it is where the original love for Jamaicans yeah. um, about sound systems and dancehall, it actually comes from the love of being in church and the way that the pastor used to control the churches. Right. Fantastic. Tell me, uh, Levi, I mean, it's clear just, just in these opening few minutes how pivotal, pivotal your grandma was to you. So how difficult was it leaving Jamaica? How, you know, um, I take it grandma didn't come with you. She stayed at home. Um, was that, that must have been a huge wrench for you, was it? It really was. You know, as I said, my greatest fear was leaving her and coming to my parents, you know, and, and that's a... That's a very high statement to make, but it really was because I never really had that connection with my parents. And I never even had a connection with my brothers and sisters either, who I had to reconnect with them when I actually came over, over, over here. So it was, a, and plus, again, one of the most difficult things that I couldn't read or write. I was 11 and I couldn't spell my first name, which had only five letters in it. So that's bad, how bad I was. Because all the money back then, and I think for a lot of Caribbean people, it was the same, went on the older children to educate. Because in Jamaica, you have to pay for school. You have to pay for your books. You've got to pay for absolutely everything to go to school. And it was the older ones that actually got the spend so that they can leave school when time is right and actually get a job and bring back something and put into the family. That was how the nucleus of the family operated back then. And as being the youngest, for me, it was just grandma teaching me the necessary things that she knew, which was basically about food. And thank God for that, because that's how I became famous because of all the stuff that she taught me. So she, she, there was no schooling. It was just schooling with her. And she didn't really particularly have eye education, my grandma, but she knew about life and about food and about the necessary things that a, a 9, 10, 11-year-old boy would need um, mm -hmm. to know from a grandparent. Um, and those things are particular things, um, you know, that even now my mom teaches my son, Christopher, he's only eight, but she passed away recently. But before, it was just certain things that she would teach him that only a grandma, you know, would be able to, to, to teach. Yeah. So that is the only education that I had when I arrived in, in this country. So again, going into secondary school, you know, um, at the age of 11 and a half, 12, was the most terrible thing because... I couldn't read or write, whereas I had gone into a school where everybody else said, you know, all the other, even black kids had been here way before and have gone to kindergarten and primary school and had learned this stuff. And, and I went straight in and couldn't spell my first name. And it was absolutely terrible, difficult for me to be able to, to shine amongst these kids who I look up to. Um, so instead of going the right way, I went the wrong way because I wanted to be cool. That if you're not curriculum-wise, anyway, back in my school days, in the 70s, if you're not doing well in curriculum, you can only go the other way, and it's with the bad boys. Because you try to be cool, instead of being educated, the only other way you can get a, you know, a, a kudos is to be cool with the kids, and that yeah. was the wrong thing for me to do. So at me, it was just a very difficult struggle because I, I couldn't do the other side of what you were meant to be doing in school. So what were you doing, Levi? What were you up to? Well, bunking off school, as, as we call it back then, it was scolding school. 
and and getting a lot of cane in because back then you know you, you got cane when, when you were in school yeah. so it, it was difficult i didn't spend much of my time in school because i just thought that back then the teachers didn't really concentrate on any one or two pupils they never had time to that because the class was at about 50 kids in, in the class so the teacher had to have a rounded way of how about they taught and yeah. my teacher miss corkery I still remember her now. Um, she had to have a rounded way of looking after her school. She couldn't really pinpoint one child or one or two child that she should concentrate on because that's not the way it was done back then. Maybe now, you know, kids would, would be concentrating if you were dyslexic like myself back then because that was my problem. But nobody knew of the word dyslexia when I was growing up in the 70s. It wasn't something that a lot of people knew about. So you were either seen as stupid or you were seen as dunce. Um, and in, in some ways, that's what I was seen as because I couldn't understand why when I saw numbers, you know, it just flying around me and I was absolutely scared to look at numbers and, and letters on a, yeah. on a page terrified me and I just yeah. couldn't understand that. But it was my mom that actually found out that I had some fear of learning. And she was the one that actually taught me to read and write because she had the patience to be able to do that. And every evening after school, I would have to meet my mom at Tulsi Library. And um, she would sit with me for a few hours and she would, she would be reading Agatha Christie and that was a favorite read. Right. And she would give me Enid Blyton. <laughs> so I actually learned to read on, on, yeah. on Enid oh. Blyton, Famous Five and Famous Seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm an Enid Blyton. I'm an Enid Blyton guy. A similar thing to me and uh, great books. Levi, can, can I ask, uh, sorry, sorry, I just wanted to ask about your grandma again. Did, did, you, did you see her again uh, when you no, left? No, un unfortunately not. My grandma died when I was 16. Um, I was still in school um, and uh, again, it was perhaps one of the worst things that could have ever happened. Because back then you had no chance of going back, you know, to, to, to see, to, to go to the grave or burial or whatever. And, and she died and, and left a complete hole in my heart um, because my father didn't really turn out to be somebody who accepted me as a child. So I didn't really have the love for something that I was missing from my grandma from my parents here. If my mom, yes, she did brilliantly, but my father still left a gaping hole there where my grandmother would have normally fitted. So when she died, I felt like that hole is gonna be permanently there um, because I wasn't having a good time at home. And the only person that would have understood me, you know, if, even if I had a chance to speak to her, had now passed. So it, it really was a terrible time for me. It's 1974 that she died. Did that and did that impact your life for a period after losing her? Did, did this send you on? Yeah, a, absolutely. Yeah. Because again, I, I fell I fell even worse in that pit of where I was of doing all the wrong things because I couldn't catch up with the other kids where I wanted to be. Because I, I did feel like I could do something special. I, I felt like if only something would happen to me, whatever I, I grabbed onto, I would have made a success of it. But I think when my grandma passed, it, it put me down in another spiral again. And this is now when prison starts to happen. You know, Her Majesty's pleasure started knocking at my door. And, and this is where I started to end up. Again, because of following friends, of, of, of not having the impetus to do things my own way, um, because I just didn't see that was right. I thought mm -hmm. what my friends were doing was right. 
Um, and so I followed them and, um, and I didn't have an inspirator like my grandma used to be when I was a kid. Yeah, Levi, people, people might be surprised to hear that when you say that you, uh, Her Majesty's pleasure were knocking at your door. Were, were you, um, would you describe your, your kind of crimes as serious crimes? How, how, how bad did it get? No, it, it wasn't. It was, it is serious, of course, all crimes. All, all crimes or all wrongs are serious because you're somebody else or you take something that belongs to somebody else. But in those days, my friends were breaking into houses and breaking into shops and, and we were 15, 16 year old and they were doing all that sort of stuff. And of course I followed them and, and I got caught and I had my first detention center um, when I was 17 and um, I had three months. And, and that's what I said. But before that, as I said, when I say Majesty's pleasure, I'm talking the police and everybody were knocking at your door because I was doing so many bad things, you know, petty crime, you know, as a schoolboy just leaving school. And I knew that the knock was coming. And that's what I meant by Majesty's pleasure knocking at the door. That sometime sooner or later, I would have been caught. I would have been punished in some way. And, um, and, and then I've, I got my first three months, three months in, in detention. And, and did it get worse before it got better? Absolutely, because that's, that's how it goes. If you can eject yourself from the problem or you don't have somebody to take you away from that melting pot of mess, you'll always be in it. And, and back then, because where I lived in Brixton, South London, by the time I left school, um, again, I went back into it because there is nobody that would have come around to Brixton you know, and, and, and try to inspire young kids then, because I don't know what you know about Brixton back then, but in the 70s, if you had a house in Brixton and you want to give it away for free, nobody would have taken it off. Because it was the time, I think we went through three or four riots in Brixton before yeah, I was in my 20s. Um, so it was really that bad. And you are a product of the community that you live in because you have to survive by what you do in the community and how the people in charge looks at you, the citizens within the community. And, and those that were in charge back then, you know, they took their eyes off the ball if you lived in Brixton, particularly if you were, if you were Caribbean, Caribbean birth. Yeah. And, and what was your epiphany moment then, Levi? What was the thing that kind of brought it home to you that this was not uh, um, sustainable, uh, this life of crime? It was a mentor, actually. It's just like what we're talking about. Nobody came around when I was quite younger to try to inspire young kids. Um, nobody looking like me anyway, that was black and, you know, and I could identify with back then, um, came around. And I suppose my life changed because I actually found someone or someone found me who was a mentor that could say to me, you know, I believe in you. I, I can see the good in you. And I'm going to help you to be able to get that, to, to make that good become out front and not the Levi. Be, I always said that, you know, the guy that was doing the wrong when I was quite younger was Keith. That was that's my real name, you know, because mm. I had to change that to be the real me. I had to get rid of Keith because I found that Keith was a Scottish name. And I just thought that I'm not bloody Scottish, you know, something went wrong. I'm going to find out why I'm the way that I am and why my name is Keith and make that be the part of the change. And I found that Scottish because 90% of Jamaicans have Scottish names because of the slave owners and people that were looking after, you know, the slaves at the time were Scottish names and the slaves took the name of the, 
the slave owners. And Graham, Keith Graham was my name. And that's a complete Scottish name. So I thought I had to get rid of Keith and, and find the real me. And it was, it was me tapping into Rastafari yeah. through listening to Bob Marley's music. Yeah. And I found that I, I could actually change from being Keith into Levi, which was the month I was born. If you're born in June, you're a Levite, as called to the Rastafarian calendar. 12 months of Jacob starts in April. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Those are the four main four months. And I was Levi from June. So I took on the name of Levi and started my musical career. And still that didn't work for me because I still ended up behind bars again. And it was while I was in bars, so my last time that I found the mentor that believed in me. And I was in a place where I could actually make that change without the interruption of following other people, which I was very good at, doing the wrong thing, of not doing my own thing, is following the leader. And here I was in a place now, and again, I used those words at a majesty's pleasure. Inside, I had a mentor that came in once a week and was mentoring me and telling me that says, you're brilliant, I can change you, and here are the things that will help you change. Here are the books that you can read, and, and this is how you should be. And that was the change for me. And I found that I wasn't Keith anymore. Mm. I was now Levi Roots, the man with his music and his food. And it's when I came out, that's when the real Levi Roots started yeah. to take play. And I never looked back after that. No. Uh, Levi, we'll talk, about, we'll talk about the food and the music in a minute. I'm just interested for you to... Uh, share with some of the listeners and watchers uh, about Rastafarianism and, and, and what it is in terms of kind of spiritual, uh, how important is it to you as yeah. an individual? And just say a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the struggles in school, I wanted to find me. And I suppose reggae music back then was a way for Jamaicans to be expressing themselves religiously the new Jamaicans, the younger ones who didn't really accept the religious way of how my grandma and my parents were, were, were teaching life. They wanted to find a new way. So I suppose in the 1930s was when Rasta started to first to, 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 to listen to Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey is, is seen as the founder and the father of Rastafariism, and he's Jamaica's greatest philosopher, Marcus Garvey. And he was the one that says, look to Africa for a crowning of a black king, and within him, you will find your redeemer. And I suppose Rasta took that as looking for, not exactly a God, because Rastas don't really believe in God. But I use the same word as an inspirator, somebody that can inspire you. And, and when you think of that person, the good will come out of you, and you can follow that person's creed and the way they are. And that's how Rasta came about, by, by those words by Marcus Garvey, that instead of, you know, worshipping the Jesus at the time, which a lot of people found difficult of having this white Jesus blue at every black house had that. And absolutely every black house had that picture of the white Jesus with a blue eye. And I think a lot of Jamaicans at the time were searching for something else that they can identify. Like I was saying to you, I need a mentor that looked like me when I was growing up in Bigston. I wish I had somebody that was black, that could, that was a Jamaican that would understand my background and that would say, look, you know, you know you're not doing too well, change your life. And I would have listened to that more than a, a Peter Jones type fellow when I was quite, I think if Peter Jones had come around to Brixton, was quite young, 
would have probably chased him Robinson or something that we never identified with him back then. Mm. So I suppose when Rastas were saying Rastafari, younger people were now identifying with his imperial majesty, Emperor Ali Selassie, as somebody that they could identify with as an inspirator, um, rather than this blue-eyed sort of, you know, guy that they were seeing on the appearance room. And I rebelled against that blue eye. So when I was hearing Bob Marley's music about Rastafari and about looking to Africa and, and, and you are you as a black man and you are being proud and everything, um, that's when I decided to take on the mantra Rastafari and named myself Levi Roots so yeah. I can identify with, with my inspirator. You, you've uh, made me think about another question, Levi, and that is how is, um, you know, because you had this Baptist kind of upbringing, how has uh, that period of time and now with your period of being a Rasta uh, affected a relationship, if, if anything, or if there is a relationship with Jesus in this now, you know, are you, are you able to see beyond the blue eyed white Jesus uh, to something else or not? Absolutely. Actually, that's an amazing question there. I, I, I really love, love that question because it is something that not a lot of people ask about. And to answer your question there, I merged the two together. I'm not talking for other Rastas because, and even other Christians because we've got so many religions. But personally, what I try to do is to merge these two teachings because I have great respect for the biblical way because I grew up with that. Most of my songs and, and everything that inspires me in word-wise comes from what I read and what my mom read to me and my grandma. That's very important to me. But I think the Rastafari religion that allows me to be, to be more be culturally aware, it, it talks a bit more about me as a Black man, as Rastas. Whereas where I, when I was searching for where my mom was, I couldn't find me as a Black man in there. I couldn't find me as a black man in, 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 in the Texas. I had to look very hard to, to find where I am in this great book of the Bible. Mm. Um, it's very difficult. But I think when I think of Rastafari, so when I was growing up, I knew I was in there because that was about me. And so what I did is just merge the two together. And then that's how I managed to sort of still use what I learned as a religious person from my grandma and as my mom but identify with this new me who I felt a little bit more powerful because as I said, it was, it was current and it was apparent to me. I didn't have to search for who I was back then because it was there. And that's how I managed to put the two together. But I, I never, like some, you know, disregard the biblical side of things and accept this new me. I, I think they're both one. And anyway, Rastas read the same Bible. Rastas read, it's not like we read a different Bible. It's just that we interpretate yeah. the Bible in a slightly different way. Yeah, that's really helpful, Levi. Thanks for explaining that for us. Let's let's uh, talk about music then. So you you, yeah. you you love your music. I love my music. Um, tell tell me when you first picked up a guitar then, and where did that that happen? Oh well, I've been a singer for many many years, but I didn't play music. You know, I rapped. I was first a DJ. I was a rapper on a sound system called Sir Coxon. I left school and I went straight. I, my first job was as an engineer. I did that for a year working for a company called Selby Engineer with my brother. And I, I perhaps, if I speak that, I probably would have become something that my father would have wanted to be, like an engineer like my, my elder brother. Um, but the music was constantly calling me because of that connection with my grandma and content and Baptist church and everything. I wanted to sing and want the music. So I left Selby Engineering 
and, and pursued my, my career as a musician. I was a rapper. I was very good at lyrics, just forming words together. So I, I, I made records and everything like that. But many years later, when I was actually now in my second stint at Her Majesty's Pleasure, <laughs> um, and I was in there, I had a very long sentence. This time I was serving seven years. And my mom, who was now thinking that she needed to inspire me in some ways, she knew I loved music, but I couldn't play. She went to a place in Brixton called Exchange and Mart. It was a guitar shop in Brixton. And she paid 500 pounds for this. I don't know whether you can see it behind Yeah, me. yeah. <laughs> yeah. She That's paid guitar, 500 pounds. Absolutely, my dragon slaying guitar. She, she paid 500 pounds, which in, in those days, that was 1986. It's a lot of money to my mom, 500 pounds to spend on guitar. And she brought the guitar. And I don't know how she persuaded the prison officers for me to have it in my cell, but she did it. I didn't see anybody, much other people around me that instrument when I was serving my time. She managed to convince them for me to have the guitar in my cell. She brought the guitar and she brought a Beatles book of chords, which is a Beatles songbook that showed you how to hold the chords where your fingers went and all that kind of stuff. And she, she brought the guitar and the book and I had it in my cell. And just because of the love of my mom, I persevered looking at the guitar, playing and perhaps the natural music thing in me came. I taught myself play and I wrote my my album free your mind on, on the album and that was the album that was nominated for mobile awards when I came out. Levi does that guitar still work? It does. <laughs> can, you, can you give us a quick can you remember what one of the first pieces of music that you play? Can you give us a quick give us a yeah, quick I won't take that one down because I never really played them. I've got a spear oh, here. All right okay. <laughs> oh great look at this give us a little I got a spear that, that one's retired now. <laughs> <laughs> it was an E minor. That was the first chords I ever learned to play, an E minor. Right. And my song, Breaking Down the Barriers, Free Your Mind, actually came from that. And I was like... Breaking down the barriers. And I, that was the first cause that I ever played, and that was a, a famous reggae chip, as we call it in, in, in reggae, the rhythm. And I, I managed to play a rhythm guitar and right. wrote albums, and of course wrote my famous reggae, reggae sauce song yeah. on the same guitar that my mom had brought me. I figured out the chords when I was still inside, but I didn't put the words together until I came out and I started to manufacture the sauce. And that's when the words came, put some music in the food. So it nice is. with your fried chicken, make burgers finger licking. That was afterwards. <laughs> Levi, you couldn't write this story, could you really? It's incredible. <laughs> you couldn't write it. So, so, so you've got the guitar. So what about the cooking? When did you start? I yeah. was reading that you, you started making these sauces and you were flogging them at, uh, at festivals and, and, and um, you know, great events. And tell, tell us about this kind of, yeah. How this source has evolved. Well, the, came out the music. It went back into the music. As I said, I was the new me when I came out of uh, came out of prison, absolutely by my mentor, um, 
you know, that used to come into the prison. I became the new me. I was now Levi Root. I wasn't Keith anymore that used to function and think. I didn't read the same stuff that I used to read before. I was now the new me. I love Shakespeare. I could quote Shakespeare for, for now forever. I was this, this sort of new person, really. So I came out. I produced the album, Free Your Mind. I had not got nominated for the Mobo Award for it, which was absolutely fantastic, because I'm sure that you probably know Mobo Award. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the fans that actually um, tells you that you've got the awards, not, not record companies. So it's people that were listening to your music, and I was really pleased with that. But still, after that, the music just wasn't giving me enough money, because um, reggae wasn't a bit like pop, where mm. you see you had one number one pop records and you're, you're set for life. You know, I'd be singing for long and reggae just kind of makes you enjoy it. You get fall in this comfort zone of loving the music, but you're not actually making any money. And it was when actually I realized that I had to come out of the comfort zone of, of music, that I, I thought that what should I do? Shall I put the guitar down completely and get a job, which I did for a while? Or, or shall I merge these two passions of mine, you know, this love that I have for the music? And plus, I knew that my grandmother had given me this education about Caribbean food, and I could cook anything. As a matter of fact, all my friends before that, when we were with the sound system, you know, when we were on tour, I used to have a little cooker with me that we used to take on tour with us. And while we're sort of in the room, sort of while the, the sound system is doing sound check, I would be in the dressing room with this little cooker, and I'd be cooking up some little meals in the middle of France or in, in Germany or wherever we were touring. So, I mean, everybody knew that I had this love, love for cooking. But when I realized that I had to come out of the comfort zone of music because I wasn't making any money, I just thought that I'm going to merge these two things together. I'm going, to, I'm going to put them together, the music and the food, wrote the song and started to do the Nothing in Carnival. Um, and every year I would turn up at the carnival. We, uh, we named my stall the restaurant. As, a, as opposed to the restaurant, the restaurant. <laughs> and it was there that people just came every year. They came back, same people every year, you know. They weren't necessarily coming back for the sauce then. They were coming back for the whole thing of the man and what he does. Yeah. Because um, people weren't really anchoring for sauce left, right, and center. They just came because it was a cool restaurant. He had his guitar and he had his kids and he was cooking some cool food. And it was him. And every year it would be absolutely amazing. And then one year, I just thought to myself, this is the time for it. You know, I'm, I'm going to launch it um, based upon the fact that I knew that mainstream people wanted a carnival because my stall wasn't exactly Caribbean people that were coming. It was mainly mainstream people that were coming to my, my stall. And I realized that I had a market for it. And um, I now decided that I'm going to not be the singer, uh, the, the, the rapper or whatever I was back then. I'm now going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to market my source, but still merge the music with it and fit that new song that I've now written about about the source and about my grandma and about everything. And that's going to be my you know my my way forward then forward. And we did the carnival for for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't have much fun selling the sauce locally. Um, as a matter of fact, it was a disaster in my local Brixton. Because I, 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 originally I thought it was going to be a great idea, you know, Caribbean place, me selling Caribbean food is going to be amazing. But everybody makes their own sauce in, in Brixton. Everyone's a Caribbean place. They make, perhaps even make better sauces than me. And I had the stories about grandma and all that. Everybody's from Jamaica. So it just didn't work. And I, and I just knew that I had to, again, reevaluate my position. 
So I decided to go into what I call the shires, which was anywhere in the UK that had shire at the end of it. For three years, that's all I would do. I would go to Carmarthenshire, Lincolnshire, all these places that there's no dreadlocks rastaman looking like me, jumping out with a guitar selling a sauce. Yeah. These lovely country villages and these food fates. I would turn up there with my guitar and with the sauce for a couple of years and singing it. And it was while I was there at one stage that I was spotted by, um, by one of the producers on Dragon's Den wow. who asked me to come on the show. And I'd never seen the show. I'd never heard of it. I, actually, I was chasing the lady away and I'm not interested in, in whatever you're trying yeah. to tell me. Yeah. Uh, but I'd never heard of the show. Uh, but then she, she gave me a business card and I took the card. Right. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Did you, did you come to Lancashire? I did. Yeah. As I said, for three years, <laughs> we went right across the UK in a little van with my kids and a couple of friends of mine. Every other week, we would find a chili festival or a little yeah. Saturday market mm -hmm. in the Shires. And I would be the, I mean, you can imagine the scenario. Police were stopping us and everything because they thought that we were selling other things, yeah. you know. <laughs> you could see some rastaman coming around into Carmarthenshire and places like that. I own Petersfield which as I said, is just really weird. And we would be constantly getting stopped by police searching for other things. But all we had on there was just sauces and a guitar and stuff like that. So it was a really funny time, but it was the time when I actually found my market because I knew that I had to, I didn't have a ready-made market. I had to go out and find a market for regular reggae sauce. And this is why I did in the Shires. When you went on that show, Levi, I wondered, you know, do the judges know that you're going to basically turn up with a guitar and sing a song? Are they briefed at all? Or <laughs> how does it work? Yeah, funny one. Well, when, when I was spotted by that lady, the producer, she saw me singing. So I said to her that I'm not going to go on the show if I can't be me with the musician, the rest of her with the, the guitar. So she went back to the BBC and I think they, they, you know, they said to her, no, you know, it can't work. The only way it can work is if Levi comes in and actually do a screen test. I'm the only one that's ever been a Dragon's Den that's had to do a screen test <laughs> because I, I, they probably think that they wanted to hear the song to see that I wasn't singing any profanities or it was mm -hmm. gonna be anything yeah, yeah. like that. That was what. So I, I went to the BBC about a week before the show and sang sang the song and, and they were all fine with it. They were a bit worried because nobody had ever sang before on the show. <laughs> they were thinking that it's gonna go right or whatever is gonna is gonna go wrong. And and they said, okay, I could do it. I went home and I told my kids and everybody said I should sing. Absolutely everybody that I knew that 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 had watched Dragons then before. Apparently I was the only one that had never seen the show. But everybody that had seen it had said to me, Levi, don't take the guitar. Because they were saying that it's never been done before. You should go like everybody else had done it before. Nice suit and tie and just stand there and, and talk to the, to the dragons as everybody else had done. But I wanted to be me. Again, I was inspired by the fact that I was loving who I am. You know, I was a rastaman and the source that loved his grandma that was telling her story. I wasn't talking about my story or what I did. I love talking about my grandma and expressing her food and her, and her recipes. And that's what I wanted to take, take the Dragon's Den. Um, and I got there, my guitar string broke twice. <laughs> like as if like I was supposed to be in the show. When it broke the second time, I called the director over and I said to, I was the only black person on the show out of about 15 people that were being interviewed that day for Dragon's Den. I went over to the producer and I said to the producer that I want to go home. 
I explained that my guitar string had broken twice and I never had a spare one. And I'm feeling this Rastaman feeling that I'm going to be the proverbial, you know, it's lamb to the slaughter, this black guy that is the only one that, you know, that's a bit stupid with his guitar, I never got through. Please, can I go home? And they sent for a, a step, <laughs> they sent for a pair of guitar strings. <laughs> Instead of sending me home, they sent somebody to drive all the way to Kennington and to get a guitar set of guitar string, brought it back, trying to string up again, still didn't work. And if you look at my appearance on Dragons Den now, you will actually see that there's only five strings on the guitar. So it was just a complete mess for me. I thought that everything was going through, but going back to the original topic of, of Rastafari and about religion, about God and having belief of somebody, because um, my mom, I went to see my mom the night before I went to Dragon's Den because I never had the taxi fare to take me there. I went to see her to ask her to lend me 20 quid so I could pay, because I couldn't take the bus because I had my guitar and I had the sauces. And I, I went to my mom and I knocked on the door and as soon as I opened the door, all Jamaican mothers know when there's something wrong with their sons, like old mothers. So she looked at me and she just straight, she just did the same thing. She said, pick up the bike. And she always says, when I go in, pick up the Bible. I'm saying, Mom, I'm, I'm here to I asked you for 20 quid. I've, I've got the most important thing tomorrow morning, and you're telling me to pick up the bloody Bible. She says, pick up the Bible. Picks up the Bible. She says, open it at Psalm 23. And I'm still like, you know, feeling, oh, God. You know, so I open it at Psalm 23, and she says, and I read, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she said, stop there. Just as I, I shall not want. She said, stop this. She says, if you believe in your shepherd and you go to the dragon's den, you will come back as a dragon slayer. My mom said that. Even though now I use the term dragon slayer as my nickname, she said that on that night before dragon's den, she said, you go to your inspirator and you tell him that you don't want to be wanting anymore and you will come back as a dragon slayer. I didn't even finish reading the rest of the psalm because I knew it anyway. Um, but she stopped me at that very first paragraph. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you know what, Alex? From that night, I've never been wanting for anything from she said that. Wow. That is, that is some story, Levi. That is wonderful, isn't it? It's just, gosh. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, writing something. I have a film coming out. Um, I'm working on my movie, which will be, hopefully, we'll, we're, we're a few months behind because of COVID, but um, filming should start in the summer. And it's absolutely unbelievable that a, a, a mainstream cinematic movie has been made about my life. And it's moments like, like those that I thought before was unbelievable when I tell the story and I think about that, you know, that night, mm. going to see her and she giving me that message. And by the way, I left without even asking her for the 20 quid because I <laughs> forgot. I forgot. I was so inspired. Wow. I was so inspired by the words of how she had said to me, pick up the Bible, turn to Psalm 23, read, stop at that point. It was just like a magical moment. And I left the house without even remembering the hacks for the fare. And, and before you ask, how did I pay the taxi fare? I didn't because I took the taxi the morning and I didn't tell the driver that I couldn't pay him. <laughs> 
I took the taxi because of the inspiration. And when the taxi got to London Bridge from Brixton, which London Bridge is where the Dragon's Den would be filmed at the time, I explained to the driver that I was now going on the most amazing journey. And sorry, mate, I just don't have the 12 quid that you're asking for to pay for it. And the taxi man gave me his blessing, gave me his blessing and said, it's fine, go ahead. And um, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely an amazing story it is. When, I, when I think of it, yeah. Le Levi, and, and how, how, has, how has that show changed your life? You know, not, not, not necessarily the, the dosh. I'm not really bothered about yeah. the money. But how has it changed your life in in other in other ways? I, I, let's start with the bad things first. I don't like to hide anything. If you know how I've been talking to you, you know, I think my life is is is, is my bond, uh, as I say, you know, whatever. So the worst thing, and and just for in case there are any budding entrepreneurs are listening to your podcast, it's loneliness. Fame, fortune, success is a lonely road. Especially if you get it in the lump sum that what I've got in the eye of where I've got it. it is a lonely road. Because for you to maintain on that route, to keep what you've got, you have to disregard everything left, right, and center that you had done before. Every time that you have, the old majority of time that you have that you'd have normally give to other people, including your family, most of that, you have to give it to the business. So for me, even though on one hand, I was now becoming perhaps one of the most famous black men in this country, who, I hasten, who doesn't kick a ball or run fast. Because here I was now, I was about making money. I was about punching. And we didn't have a lot of those on TV back then because I can't remember most of our heroes and stuff that we look up to our sports or whatever. So here I was now being one of the first about money making that's going to be, everybody's is, you know, it's going to be really trying to get inspired, in, in, inspired by it. And for me, it was just, it's about my family. I, I miss the fact that they, the time that I had to put in to become an entrepreneur had taken me away from my kids, particularly. And so that's one of my worst part of being who I am now and, and how you know I've been blessed in, in this particular way, is that my family and my friends have suffered because of that. And that's how it is. Because there is this saying about entrepreneurs that, you have to surround yourself with like-minded people. It's really an important statement. And with saying that, you do have to drop off all everything else, unfortunately. So that's the, the worst part of it. And it's not just me. I think most of my entrepreneurial friends that I speak to, they tell you the same thing, that you cannot go into this long-term and expect to be the same way you were before and functioning with the same friends and, and the way that you are giving your time that you had to other to other things. No, this needs you 150%. Um, because the entrepreneur, everything is about the person. He's like, you know, he's like the, the lone wolf. You know, that's what an entrepreneur is. Everything comes from him um, and, and his team. But yeah, that, that's the worst thing about it. But the, the best thing is that says um, you find a new you that you perhaps didn't even realize that. One of the first things that I started off when I 
my business started was something called a school of life tour. I wanted to go to every school in the UK and tell the story of Levi Roots, um, that if I can do it, then anyone can do it. And we were doing, for, for about 10 years, we were doing like two schools a day on average. I must have gone into thousands of schools since I started. It was my, it's my favorite thing, is to go into school. Absolutely, thousands of schools since 2007. Um, at one stage, I was so busy going into school that my lawyer was telling me, Levi, you've got to, you've got to stop this. You've got to pull back on the." But that was that I had found this new me that just wanted to tell this story and wanted to try to inspire, you know, other people to say that, look, you know, my life was terrible. It's difficult to find other people that sort of went through this. It's the same as what I did with my parents and my father and got left behind in Jamaica, being rooted up, coming to a new country, can't read or write, and having to focus yourself through throughout life. But but if you if you can do that, you know, then at the end of it, you know, there is some kind of happiness at, at the end of it. Not entirety, because nobody has happiness entirety. <laughs> and that's why God makes it that way, that you don't have it all. There's a realization around this somewhere. But that's the good and the bad, the bad of it. I get to do the things that I really love to do and that makes me happy, which is inspiring back young people. But on the other end, my friends and my family have suffered because of that concentration of being an entrepreneur, what you have to do to maintain it. I can't hear you. Levi, it's been brilliant, absolutely brilliant talking to you. It's your story is utterly inspiring. I just um just to kind of bring this to a close, what do you think your grandma would make of it all? Oh. I think she probably, she probably, I don't know. It's very difficult to say. I, I know my grandma would have loved the fact that I've gone the way that I have, but I, I suppose she wouldn't have liked the fact that I was a raster, because as I said, she, is, she was a staunch Christian. Um, and even back then, when she was young, Rastas wasn't particularly cool um, as they were, you know, in, in the 70s, 80s and 90s and going, going on. So I don't know whether or not she would have taken the fact that I've locked up my hair and, I, and I've actually followed her uh, teachings completely. But I think she would have been absolutely amazed by my success, knowing, you know, where I'm from and, and knowing how it was, how I grew up, you know, unable to sort of um, have the education that she probably would have loved me to have. And now I've turned that around. But yeah. It'd be fantastic. I'm sure. And I'm sure she's looking down and she's exceptionally proud of you. Levi, it's been it's been wonderful. Thanks ever so much for your time. Can you, I was going to say, could you play us out with a bit of reggae, reggae sauce on your guitar there? <laughs> would, that be, would that be possible? Thanks, That'd be wonderful. Somebody put some music in the food for me. Give me some reggae, reggae sauce. Hot reggae, reggae sauce. It's so nice. I had to name it twice. I call it reggae, reggae sauce. Hot reggae, reggae sauce. It's so nice with 
your fried chicken. Make burgers, finger licking. And your barbecue and your drumsticks. Put some reggae, reggae sauce on your dish. Hey, wonderful, Levi, and available in all leading supermarkets, no doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Levi, thank you so much. We send you our love from Lancashire, one of the great shires out there, uh, down to Brixton, and we thank you so much for coming on the Goldcast. But for now, Levi, thank you and goodbye. Cheers, Alex. Respect you, my man. One love.